0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: Parenting is like, I've compared it to having a heroin problem, When you're high, you've never been so high, but when you're miserable, you've never been so fucking miserable. (laughs) This is the worst.
0: And this is Death, Sex, and Money. (laughs) You're gonna die, clown! (laughs) The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. My husband, I believe, is seeing another woman. And need to talk about more.
1: Money don't make my world go round. I'm reaching out to a higher ground.
0: I'm Anna Sale. And this is Dan Savage, writer, podcaster, expert on sex.
1: The joke, the idea was, you know, I would treat straight people and straight sex with the same contempt and revulsion that straight advice columnists had always treated gay people and gay sex with i would sneer at straight people and their horrible depressing marginal sex lives and their there's disgusting and perverted sexual practices and then give them some advice after just riffing and joking about how icky straight sex was
0: and when did you realize you were tapping into a real need
1: <laughs> when the mail started pouring in <laughs>
0: So Dan Savage started out making fun of straight people, but it turned out they really needed him. For more than 20 years now, he's been answering sex advice questions in graphic detail with a gleeful dirtiness. So yes, this episode includes saltier language than usual. A lot of the questions are about what's a deal breaker and what's worth working through, particularly around infidelity and monogamy. It's something Dan Savage has thought about in his own marriage. He's been with his husband, Terry, for almost 20 years. They married in 2005, for the first time in Canada. They have a teenage son, DJ, and live in Seattle. That's where he was when we talked, while I sat in New York.
1: I love New York. I wish I lived there. I always thought I would, and then I got stuck in Seattle for the rest of my life.
0: There's still time.
1: No, there really isn't. No? I'm in my 40s. I'm married. My husband doesn't want to leave. We were a kid in high school, so there's just no fucking escape now. We are trapped.
0: <laughs> this is classic Dan Savage. Clear-eyed and cynical. A gay straight talker, if you will. But playful and loving about the family he's totally devoted to. It's how he can be both a sex columnist with a filthy mouth and the creator of It Gets Better a viral video series that lovingly assured LGBT kids that they're not alone. Dan Savage was a young gay kid when he started giving sex advice. Men and women would come to him because he says he could translate, and he was the only gay guy around.
1: I was the only out gay guy in my theater department. (laughs) Wrap your head around that, the idea that there could be a big theater department (laughs) with one homo in it, and I was that homo. A whole bunch of the people I went to college with came out after college, after they graduated, which used to be the trajectory. I was a freak. I was really weird. I came out in high school. That wasn't what people did uh, in the 80s, right? And so, yeah, people would confide in me. People would tell me things. And, you know, gay people, we do know more about sex. We have more sex. We're better at it because we have to communicate with each other in a way that straight people don't. You know, when two, when an opposite sex couple, a boy and a girl, they get to consent. They get to, yes, we are going to have sex. And they stop talking to each other. They stop communicating and negotiating when two dudes get to yes it's the beginning of the negotiations it's the beginning of another conversation who's going to do what to who and that conversation makes us better at sex it's not just being gay makes us better at sex communicating makes us better at sex and we have to communicate in a way that straight people don't have to and i think you know we couldn't be gay if we didn't communicate at least that you have to open Mm your mouth and say you're gay
0: so there's negotiating sex acts and what's going to happen you know when you're together in a room, and then there's negotiating when you're not together in the same room. You've had that conversation with your husband. You you describe yourself as monogamish as a couple. To me, and maybe this is because I'm a straight woman, to me saying to my partner, this is what I want to do with you, and, and these are some things that I desire with you, versus I want to have sex with this other person that's not you, and I love you. That conversation mm-hmm. is would be more difficult for me. Do you see it as you, one and the same?
1: Uh, I don't see it as one and the same. They're very different and they're very difficult uh, conversations. Uh, you know, the the advantage that a same-sex couple has, you know, a couple of lesbians or a couple of gay men, is that the object of one's desire can also be the object of the other's desire. Hmm. But it, a non-monogamous relationship uh, is, they're all unique. There are they're different rules. A monogamous relationship or a non-monogamous relationship can be anything from, you know, we're socially monogamous. But if you ever do something with someone else, I don't want to know about it. Don't tell me. Uh, don't do it in any way that I'm going to get caught. Don't do it in a way that's going to humiliate me in the eyes of my friends or family or our neighbors. But if something happens, all right, whatever. Be where you need to be. Be where you're told me you're going to be. Love me. Be there for our family. And maintain our bond and our sexual connection, too. And if something happens, I don't want to know. Can, can, can. Um, I don't think anything goes. I don't think people should fuck whoever they want, whenever they want, however they want. I think you can have too much sex. I'm a gay man and I'm almost 50. I watched my peers when I was a very young adult fuck themselves to death. I was there for that. There's a price to sort of untrammeled um, promiscuity and, and, and sexual adventuring, an emotional and a physical price. But there's a balance.
0: How do you think coming out and going to gay bars as a teenager in the early eighties when the AIDS epidemic is just starting and watching what happened to the gay community as you're entering it as a gay man, how do you think that shaped you?
1: Uh, it scared the shit out of me. It certainly rubbed my nose and the potential downside, uh, and the importance of really assessing who your partners were and being careful and being conscientious and being thoughtful. Um,
0: How many friends of yours died from AIDS?
1: You know, I was young. Uh, It wasn't like I was 30 in 1979. Uh, I was uh, 15, 16 in 1979. And something that makes straight people sometimes uncomfortable when you talk about gay life, particularly then, is, you know, I came out 15, 16, 17 years old, and most of my gay friends were older My first boyfriends were older because my peers weren't out. Mm -hmm. I didn't have 15, 16, 17-year-old gay people, lesbians, spies, trans folks to hang out with because nobody was out (laughs) except for me. So I lost people like, you know, mentors. I lost first boyfriends. I lost – and then I lost friends. I lost people my own age who got infected and died. And it was, you know, dozens, dozens of people in my 20s and early 30s died. 30, 40 people. I moved to Seattle in 1991 and then, you know, began to make new friends and began to lose new friends. And for a while in my cubicle, I would just write their names on this little like white space uh, next to my desk whenever somebody I had gotten to know died. When we moved out of that office three or four years later into a new one, there were, I think, 18 names there. It was still mowing people down in the early 90s before the the new drugs came along.
0: Dozens I mean it seems to say to say dozens seems it's just a it's a, a terrible word to use for it people. Is. And you shouldn't yeah. know
1: dozens of you shouldn't have dozens of dead friends by the time you're twenty eight you really shouldn't uh, but I did we did, and you were walking around going through your day, and most of the world was getting on with it as if this wasn't happening because it wasn't happening to them, and so there wasn't a lot of Uh, sympathy or understanding, or uh, there wasn't much compassion. There was this attitude of, you're getting what you deserved."
0: Coming up, Dan Savage talks about his family, the one he built in Seattle and the one he came from in Chicago. He's one of four kids born to Irish Catholic parents who divorced while he was growing up. His mother died in 2008.
1: You know, the one of the things I think you learn as you grow into middle age is that every goddamn cliche actually applies. You should have called your mother more often. You know, we thought time was limitless. We thought we had nothing but time. Even when my mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness, mm-hmm. she was given five years to live. And then when the five years ran out, she was given two more to live and she was dead six weeks later. And so I have, you know, I have massive regrets. Uh, There are things that I wish that I could do for her that I can't. There are things I wanted to do for her that I couldn't uh, when she was alive that I now could um, do for her. I'm now in a position I could do them for her. And, you know, she's not here. I would love, now that my kid's a teenager, I'd love to be able to talk to her about these years. She got four teenagers successfully through their adolescences. And I wish I could lean on her. I wish I could go to her for advice. And I can't. She was who I went to for advice. She was my Dan Savage.
0: Dan Savage on his mother, Judy. After the break, Dan talks about his father and why it's still hard for them to connect. We asked for your stories about money and relationships. Hi, Anna. This is some And you told me about the people you've asked for help. I don't come from money by any stretch... But the advice of my mother and my mother's mother was always that a woman should keep her own bank account in their relationship. Um, interestingly, those relationships ended. But it also longer term makes me think, well, hang on, i don't I don't know that I want to be the breadwinner, I don't know that I want to to work hard all my life. On the next episode, more of your stories about love and money.
1: Ultimately, I was kind of working three jobs at the time and uh, totally independent of my parents. I think I was 27 at the time. Um, I decided I couldn't stick it out with somebody who was uh, financially irresponsible. I thought about us getting married and never wanting to share a bank account with him. And um, I just couldn't commit to being with somebody like that. Financial responsibility and money issues are a huge thing that couples should be thinking about and talking about.
0: You can still tell us about the money issues in your relationships. Write us or record a voice memo on your smartphone. You can send either to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with limonata Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Dan Savage is the host of the Savage Lovecast, a podcast. He writes a column called Savage Love. And he's written multiple books about sexual politics and raising his family. You've dedicated your most recent book, American Savage, to your father. And it says, who lives in a red state, watches Fox News and votes Republican, but loves me and mine just the same. Your mother has passed away. What's your relationship with your father like now?
1: Um we talk every once in a while. Uh you know, we're we're in a much better place than we were 20 years ago. You know, we have a difficult relationship, or a relationship complicated by politics to a little bit, you know. He's one of those you know guys, 70-year-old guys who sits in front of his television set in uh, Arizona uh, in retirement watching Fox News. But he's a he's a good guy and a fun guy, and I enjoy talking to him when we talk. Uh, we're, we're not the closest, but that's life, I guess. I, I, don't, I don't even know how to how to talk about it. I don't want to disrespect my dad, but we never really clicked. Uh, I was estranged from my father for many years uh, because I was gay. That estrangement didn't make me gay. I was a little faggot. I was a sissy. You know, I couldn't play baseball. I liked musicals. I I was effeminate, and that was embarrassing to my Irish Catholic cop dad. You know, he loved me, but it was, you could see, you know, that it was a bit more of an effort to love me than it was to love my brothers. And that, you know, I think sensing that kind of rejection as a child, you react to it, you know, defensively, you meet it with a little bit of rejection of your own. And it's taken a lot of effort on both of our parts to overcome that, you know, his rejection of me, as subtle as it was as a child that, of course, I picked up on in my, you know, reaction and re- rejecting him as an adolescent.
0: When was the last time you spoke?
1: Uh, Like three months ago mm-hmm. on the phone.
0: Yeah. What, What makes you uncomfortable to talk about?
1: My dad. <laughs> yeah. Are you still there? I am. <laughs> yeah. I am.
0: Yeah.
1: What makes me uncomfortable to talk about? Uh, money makes me uncomfortable to talk about. Um, my parents were poor and they had four kids in Catholic schools and braces all at once. And there was never any money we didn't own the house we lived in. Uh, and you know, things are always really tight, uh, and harrowing. And so even to this day, I have like hang ups about money and tension about money, uh, and spending I have a hard time with. Um,
0: Was it hard for you to...
1: But nothing else makes me uncomfortable to talk about. Talking about sex with my family makes me uncomfortable. Talking about sex with my relatives makes me uncomfortable.
0: So you met your husband, Terry, in in 1995. As you're a sex columnist, you're writing about your sex life prior to meeting him. He didn't want you to write about your sex life with him.
1: Mm -hmm. No. And thank God for that.
0: What was that conversation like? What did he tell you?
1: Well, like all conversations with Terry, it was brief uh, and bossy. <laughs> um, you know, Terry's a way of making it clear that you know what's a what's a dark line, or you know what's a what's a red line, and what's not. You know, he looked at the column, and I, as all sex columnists in the '90s, I was writing a bit about my own sex life, or a lot about my own sex life. And Terry just looked at me and said, "Well, you can write about your sex life, or you can have sex with me, but you can't have sex with me and write about your sex life." And I was like, uh, "Okay, I guess I will stop writing about my sex life because look at you."
0: I wonder where that line is for you too in your relationship, though, because you've written books upon books about the (laughs) intimate details of your family and adopting your son and raising him and conversations you've had with him as he's grown up.
1: I always like to say Terry is an intensely private person who married a memoirist. (laughs) That was a big mistake on his part.
0: (laughs) Where where does Terry draw the line now?
1: well, Terry's much more open now than he used to be. Uh, anyone who follows him on Instagram can see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, like not even that long ago, I think five years ago, uh, one of the gay blogs had a big exclusive because they'd actually gotten a photograph of Terry. There were no photographs of Terry, you know, online or in the wild. No one had ever seen him. And they posted this photograph, which was Terry holding our poodle uh, or our son's poodle wearing <laughs> a fake mustache it was some Halloween picture that somehow made it online. And that was a big deal. And now, of course, there's tons of pictures of Terry online. And he draws a distinction between, you know, what I'm doing when I write Savage Love, which is jokey and dirty, uh, and what I'm doing when I write The Commitment, which was about our marriage. And that's a little bit more serious. There's still sometimes some jokes. I can't help myself. And, and so he doesn't, he doesn't perceive them the same way. So it wasn't as difficult or fraught a conversation as you might expect, considering, you know, the law he laid down when it came to the column.
0: yeah. Well, one of the things I know from reading that writing about your family is is early on after you adopted d j together, Terry did most of the child care early on while you worked outside the home and you've talked about having cats in the cradle moments and coming home and discovering that your son had started walking <laughs> has the balance between you and and the parenting responsibility has that shifted as your son's gotten older?
1: It has, and I think this is this is normal. When DJ was young, Terry was the stay-at-home dad. And whatever Terry says goes. Like Terry made the rules. And that's a role Terry is most comfortable with, being the boss. And now that DJ's a teenager, 16 years old, almost 17, you know, you you don't dictate to a teenager. Mm -hmm. You can't ground a 16-year-old successfully. You have to negotiate with a teenager. You have to reason with a teenager. And Terry's not good at that. And I am. My relationship with DJ when he was a child was more conversational, more playful, because I wasn't the taskmaster that Terry was. I wasn't the king, the rulemaker. And so now that DJ is a teenager, we have this rapport, uh, he and I, about negotiation, about talking things out, about reason, that he and Terry right now don't have. And they're having to work on that. And DJ and I don't have to work on that because that was always our thing you know I was he came home at the end of the day and we would talk about his day and mm-hmm. we would hang out and chat and I'd take him off Terry's hands but you know he was already clean and bathed and back from school and everything was done and I just had to chat with this human being who was growing and learning and developing in interesting ways and mm-hmm. so I continued to do that
0: was it difficult when you and Terry got together to figure out how you were going to spend money as a couple you, you've written about your joint checking accounts you were the breadwinner when DJ was young
1: I'm still the breadwinner um you. Know, one of the things that was so wonderful about the DOMA uh, decision from the Supreme Court was the sort of Damocles that had been hanging over our heads was uh, it disappeared in an instant because I've been the sole breadwinner and Terry's been a stay at home parent. If I should have died, if I had died, if somebody killed me, Terry wouldn't get my Social Security survivor benefits because he has the wrong genitals. He couldn't inherit my property or keep our house without paying onerous crushing taxes. So, you know, in addition to losing me, he would have been, you know, pauperized and he and DJ both would have been turned out of the house. And that just disappeared in an instant. Suddenly, Terry's genitals became irrelevant to those questions. But money is our biggest fault line in our relationship. We still fight about money. We fight about money constantly. Because uh, Terry uh enjoys spending money, and I do not enjoy seeing money spent <laughs> <laughs> and Terry is a collector uh Terry has a massive um record collection that 's always growing, and I look at it and think what am you know if I outlive you, what am I going to do with all of these records?" Um, and when is enough? Like you have more records than you could listen to in 10 years. If you sat in the living room on the floor just playing your vinyl, it would take you 10 years to listen to every single one of them and you're not <laughs> going to do that. And I don't I don't have that gene. I don't understand that desire to possess a thing that has no real use or meaning. But, you know, I, I own three pairs of shoes and Terry owns 50 pairs of shoes. Uh, and we're just different people that way. Uh, different in that I have also paid for every single pair of shoes in our house, but I only can wear three of them. And so, the, you know, if Terry hears this, he can be really mad. He doesn't like me to talk about it. Well, I
0: wanna... we fight,
1: This is what we fight. We don't fight about sex. We don't, you know, he could have an affair. And that would not be a problem for me, but we will fight when I'm home for a week and every day that I'm home, a UPS truck comes by with a package with shoes or clothes or records in it, which happens. And we have massive, huge arguments about that.
0: So from what I understand from this interview is that Terry is a bossy taskmaster who shouldn't go on eBay. This is how you described your husband.
1: (laughs) Oh, I I wish he would go on eBay because at least that's an auction. You might get a You might get a bargain on eBay. He goes on Amazon. He goes on Guilt. He goes on you know Nordstrom. He, he, Terry is not on eBay looking for bargains. <laughs> Terry doesn't have the time. There's too much shopping to do.
0: <laughs> You're turning 50 this year. Has sex in your 40s been better than sex in your 30s?
1: <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it has. But we've prioritized it. And I don't want to be one of those sex writers or sex people or sex advice assholes, who makes people who uh, don't have sex or don't prioritize sex, or even are in sexless marriages that are happy, where nobody's miserable, two people together, it's more companionate now, the sex is sort of withered, uh, you know, the passions have cooled, but they're content. I don't want those people to feel like they're being judged, or there's something wrong with their relationships. If you're both content, that's awesome. That's a wonderful working relationship. But in our relationship, you know, the sex is still kind of amazing. And we have an amazing, fun, adventurous life, uh, and a sex life. And that's always been a huge component of our connection and our relationship. And I mean, when we first got together, the handful of people we knew in common were like, what? No, Dan and Terry, no way. We had people tell us to our faces that it would never work because we were so different. And we are, we're really different people, very different in so many ways, um, but very sexually compatible on the same page. Um, But that took work and time and effort. You know, we had to carve these deep grooves into each other until we fit together better. We had a kid. There were some fallow periods. There were periods where, you know, not much could happen because of logistics. We just kind of recognized that and sort of acknowledged it like this isn't about not being in love or anything. This is about stress and exhaustion. But things have been kind of amazing. And again, you know, because we're gay, and circling back to, you know, the earlier convo about monogamy one of the things that's kept our sexual connection really intense has been the non-monogamy we have these adventures together people have come into our lives uh, as lovers and enriched and enhanced our lives taken us into new worlds and exposed us to new communities and new groups of people new groups of friends Um, and that's been very rewarding and very rich Uh, and i don't write about it and i can't write about it i'm probably not supposed to talk about it and those experiences that we've had together, sometimes sexual involving other people, have helped our marriage last and survive and, and grow stronger. And you never hear non-monogamous anything's get that kind of credit. Everyone talks about non-monogamy or non-monogamous experiences in the ter- in the context of a long-term committed couple, as if those you know those two crazy people are tossing a box of nitroglycerin back and forth. And that just hasn't been the case for us. The non-monogamy is not something that has weakened the relationship. actually something that has strengthened our relationship uh, and the relationships of other people that I know.
0: And what do you want to know about me?
1: (laughs) Are you in a committed relationship? I am. Are you not monogamous?
0: Uh, no, we're monogamous.
1: Yes. So what would you do if you found out that he cheated? Or, and what do you think he would do if he found out that you cheated? And cheating is something that will probably happen. Like, yeah. Just put that out there first. The research and the data shows that roughly 50 percent of men, 50 percent of women in long term relationships at some point will cheat. And those 50 percent of men are not married to those 50 percent of women. So it will touch almost all committed monogamous relationship. So what's going to be your reaction if and when that happens to you? I know.
0: I mean, I read I read you, Dan Savage, and you make me uncomfortable because I (laughs) intellectually, I understand all this. I get desire. I get that it's not rational. And I get that it's it's a real thing. But it I I don't know what I would do with the hurt. I would have I, I have a really difficult time seeing a way outside of it being okay. Or seeing a way for it to be okay.
1: Yeah. My advice would be if and when it happens, you know what people always say when, you know, when they talk about the people they love most in their lives, I would, you know, I would take a bullet for this person. I would, you know, walk through fire for this person. That's hurt. You're saying I would hurt for this person in a really profound and life-threatening way. I would take a bullet. I would walk through fire infidelity, when people uh, believe in monogamy and monogamy is what they want, infidelity is that bullet. And so if you look at your husband and think, I could take a bullet for that. We're not
0: married yet. I'm not even there. Or
1: if you look at your your partner and think, this is someone, you know, I love you so much, I could take a bullet for you. Just if and when it happens, remember that feeling because that's the moment where you take the bullet. And Hmm. some people accuse me because I'm pro, you know, non-monogamy, that I'm, you know, giving – get-out-of-jail-free cards to serial adulterers, or and I'm not. People should honor the commitments that they make. If you make a monogamous commitment, you should attempt to keep it, attempt to honor it, do your best. And then if you, you know, if it happens to you, if you get cheated on, you know, what is love and what is forgiveness if you can't forgive the person you claim to love most in the world for a betrayal that really cuts you to the core? And I think these things should be, because infidelity is so common, These things should be thought about well in advance of them happening. Because I think if you just set your mind to that is something as painful it is that we can get through, love each other through, forgive each other for, you're likelier to actually get through it, love each other through it, and forgive each other for it when it happens, if it happens.
0: Dan Savage, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to say any more about about. (laughs) whether I'm going to be able to handle it if my boyfriend (laughs) cheats on me. (laughs) I'm going to leave it there.
1: Or if you cheat on him. Or if I cheat on him, it's true. Women cheat too.
0: That's Dan Savage. His podcast is Savage Lovecast. His column is Savage Love. And his latest book is American Savage. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Boteen, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Henry Malofsky, Chris Bannon, Bill O'Neill, and Jim Briggs. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. We're on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or write us a review there. And Terry... Give Dan a little leeway. At the end of our talk, he asked when this episode would be coming out.
1: So I can have Terry uh, in a locked room for six months.
0: (laughs) You said it all with love, I could tell.
1: (laughs) I'm not allowed to talk about shoes on the radio. Can't talk about my sex life in my column or his shoes on the radio.
0: I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.